Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 13th, we are studying Galatians chapter 4, verses 1-7. to In today's text, St. Paul writes, further using the image of the law as a guardian. Because Christ has come at the Father's appointed time, we are no longer slaves. We are now sons and heirs through God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Wolfmuller serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches, both in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Thanks for having me. Is Galatians your favorite epistle, Pastor Wolfmuller? It is. I thought it might I be. call it Katie my rib. <laughs> Talk to us about Galatians a little bit. <laughs> that's a, that's what Luther called Galatians. He said he, he it's my Katerina von Bora. He says my constant companion, because in Galatians Paul most clearly sets forth the distinction between law and gospel, the doctrine of justification, this most treasured promise that our sins are forgiven by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that He, as the atoning sacrifice, makes a way for us to live forever in the heart of God. It's just absolutely beautiful, and and Paul comes out swinging in Galatians. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, follow the normal pattern of the of the other uh, texts. Um, all, all the letters of Paul, except for maybe Second Timothy, start with a, a thanksgiving and prayer. Paul here in Galatians just launches straight into, "Whoa, you are deceived. You have abandoned Christ. If you're gonna, you want to be made perfect by your own works and by your own obedience, you've lost everything if you do this." So. So it's really great that Paul goes right after the heart of the gospel here and unfolds it for us time after time after time to, to, to rebuke what's wrong and to compel us to rejoice in the truth of the, of the clarity of the forgiveness of sins that we have in, in Christ and what the law does, what the role of the law is, and then what the gospel brings and gives. Yeah, so as you said, Paul comes out swinging, he hits the ground running, he hasn't really stopped up to this point, but we have covered a, a little more ground, more doctrine than was what was there in his excitement in chapter 1. Uh, what are some of the things that he's been talking about so far that are important for us to keep in mind as we start chapter 4 today? Yeah, especially he's he's bringing forth a number of pictures. In fact, he calls it in chapter 3, I'm, I'm creating this, this type, this allegory to... He talks about the slave woman and the free woman, and he works all the way through that. And he's so he's he, by bringing forth these pictures and analogies, he's trying to impress us with this distinction between law and gospel. And so he's continuing to do that on into chapter four. So he, he's concluded at, at the end of chapter three, where he talks about there's neither uh, slave nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, and, and, and that sort of thing. All are one in Christ Jesus. So that, so that all the different artifices that we want to build up to separate one another, and especially to separate us from, from God and eternal life. This is, these have all been torn down in the gospel. And then he comes back to this idea of the law as a tutor and the difference between a slave and a child. And, uh, and that's going to be the, the heart, uh, that picture is at the heart of this passage at the beginning of chapter 4. Mm. Uh, before we talk about this text in particular and the pictures that are there, just a little farther back, why the importance of keeping pictures in our mind when we read the text? And I think particularly in the epistles, what's the importance of the pictures that Paul uses? 
Yeah, well, Paul, this is how Paul thinks in terms of pictures. It's how the Lord Jesus does as well. He, um, Jesus, with his parables, gives us kind of moving pictures, little images, and uh, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, um, th- this is all probably going to be speculation. We just see the fact that the, this is how the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul and, and our Lord Jesus himself to, to preach and teach, uh, and so we, we, we can receive it just as this is how Paul does it. But it's important for us to... Um, so, so number one, we just get it that way as a picture, but we can then reflect on why. And one of the reasons is that it it helps it to be communicated. It helps us to 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 hold it in our minds. The the parables, for example, like riddles and things, they, they, they there's something for us to grab onto. We're we're people that love story. We we love to think about picture. We think in terms of pictures and and moving pictures, kind of uh, narrative. So it helps us to grab onto it. It helps impress the point on us. It also is is wonderful. It's something. There's something beautiful about the picture. And for us to understand it, that's one of the main questions that we ask. What's the picture when we read the scripture, especially when we read the Psalms? What's the picture? And when we read Paul, what's the what's being yeah. what's the picture that's being painted for us? It's a it connects it to normal life. So Paul's going to say this thing is like this thing, and so we can learn by comparison. That's often the easiest and best way for us to learn. And so that's that's how Paul's going to try to teach us these wonderful spiritual truths by giving analogies from the scriptures and from everyday life. Yeah, I think what you said about story is important, too. The great majority of the scriptures are stories, they're narratives, they're accounts of things that happened, not necessarily straight-up doctrine in the sense that you might encounter it in the the catechism, where Luther says, here's the commandment, and he asks you, what does it mean, and he tells you. Rather, you hear that doctrine in the account of a story, a narrative, and so when you get these pictures in Paul, it's almost like he's doing the same thing. He's giving you a story to hold on to, to remember, so that you can learn that doctrine that's that's there. Yeah, that's right. And um, the yes, and and there's often more than one truth in the story too. And we we are just in some ways we are kind of I don't know story people. We everybody is living to have. How about this, uh, Pastor Apple, to, to think about. I've been meditating on this for the last few months, is that every person, to, to basically to have any sort of sense of meaning or purpose in life, you have to put yourself into a story, and that every story has similar features. There's really four chapters that everybody is living in, so there's a beginning and a broken and a fix and a finish. So BBFF, is there, there's a, how, how did things start? How did things go wrong? What is the fix? And and then how do things end? And the Bible, and this is a nice thing to think about, because every person is living in this story with four chapters. The Bible gives us the truth of those things. I mean, it tells us how we were created and how fallen and the redemption that's in Christ and how things will end. The secular world will give a different story, and everybody has their own version of the story that they're living in. So this is a really handy way, I think, for us as Christians to interface with people when you're talking to people and you realize that you're not on the same page, well, that's because they've, they're living in a different story. And, and the secular story is so bleak that it, it's not, you know, the story is there so we can have meaning, but, but the secular, it's amazing how bad the secular story is, is that it's a story that destroys meaning. 
I mean, we everything started with an explosion. It's going to end with an explosion or a, a slow heat death. I mean, wow, that's just such an empty, meaningless story. It turns out that there has to be God in the story for there to be meaning. That's the punchline. But um, uh, we we are storied creatures, and so it's good. And it's good also to remember that that the Bible not only tells stories, it puts it puts before us the the ultimate story and the reality of the, this huge big picture start to finish and it and it gives a cohesive idea of where we are in the midst of history yeah and and not only is it a comforting story but it is the real story it's not only that the secular story leaves right. you without meaning or comfort it's it's not true we've got the real one and the real one's actually good right the the truth is the best actually it's it can't yeah. get better than the story that the bible tells and and so it's 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 quite amazing that the Lord has arranged things that the tr- that the true story is the best possible story as well. God be praised. God be praised indeed. God be. So you can so, get to the truth just by getting to the best, or you can get to the best by looking at the truth. There's two yeah. ways into it. Yes, God be praised. Let's take a look then at the story, the picture that Paul puts before us as a part of this larger story of the Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians four, beginning at verse one. Paul writes. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That is our text for today, Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. Pastor Wolfmuller, we're talking about pictures and stories, and I think you used the language of of tutor, Earlier, Paul uses in the ESV, it's translated guardian. We talked a little bit about this in the previous text. What is this picture of a tutor or a guardian? Yeah, so it it can so in the ancient world, you would have a the, the family would be more of an economy. You would have um, father, mother, children. You would also have servants there, and the servants would have children. And those children would be all together under uh, guardians and tutors. There, there would be a school connected to the home. That's the picture here that's being painted. That you have, So you have a big home um, with, with a lot of people involved in it. And the father gets a tutor to come and teach the children, to manage the children, to train the children. And the children, the servants or the slaves, together with the children of the family, are all in school together. And they're all under the same tutor. The, the difference is that they're growing up into different stations. So the servants will grow up into servants, and the children will grow up into the owners and managers and so forth. So he says, look, as long as they're under the managers or the guardians or the tutors or the... How did the ESV say it? Was it... Guardians um, and managers. Guardians under the guardians and managers. Yeah. I think I have... Uh, I wonder if that's what I have here, ESV. So so they're, uh, they, it, they look the same. The, ch- the free children and the slave children look the same as long as they're under the guardian and the manager. But when the fullness of time comes, there's a certain point where they graduate, and then they go in very different directions. 
And this is the picture of the law and faith. So that so that Paul is saying that as long as we're under the law, there's no difference to slave and free. That they're doing the same thing. You're under the same coercive authority. But the law to, to us is for the Christian is not to bring us into further and deeper slavery, but rather to bring us at last to freedom. So when the fullness of time had come, and then Paul will switch from the idea of the child growing out from under the tutor to the incarnation of Jesus, so that so that Jesus coming marks the end of the manager or the tutor or the law's work. And now we come into the fullness of our office as God's children. So so this is the picture that Paul's painting, so that it look while you're under the law, you can't dis- determine if you're free or or in bondage. But when the right time comes, then you see the difference. And the right time comes when Christ comes. Now that that coming of Christ is going to be, first of all, in human chronology on December 25th, year three, or I suppose in March 25th, the, the nine months earlier. Sure. Uh, so the fullness of it's that entrance into human chronology, but um, but even more, it then it happens for each one of us at the point of repentance, at the point of baptism. That's that that's that in moving into the inheritance of the children. So there's an in, there's a built-in uh, limit to the law. There's an until of the law, and that until of the law is is really the point that Paul's leaning into and that we want to lean into it to understand this text, is that the, the, the law has its scope and its purpose, but it also has its limit. And there's a danger that the law will, that the devil will try to press the law into service beyond its scope. And this is what Paul's warning about. So, so, so he's, he's putting this hard until there uh, that, that we want to meditate on. Okay, well, let's meditate a little bit more on that. That until of the law, in the in the the picture that he paints, the until is the date set by the father, and then when he turns then to the the son coming in history, it's in its correspondence is in verse four, the fullness of time. I think it's important to note that the fullness of time there in verse four corresponds to the date set by the father, so that the fullness of time isn't simply some kind of accident or coincidence of history, but rather this is the Father working out his saving purpose for the world by bringing about this time that he has set. I think that's really important. Well, yeah, and the old theologians used to talk about this a lot because they would talk about how how all of history had been prepared for the precise moment of Christ's birth. I mean, even the stars align, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all these other things, like you see that there's a universal language, that there's these even transportation that's made possible throughout the world. It's probably that, that time when Christ was born was such a unique time in the history of history that we see it as the, uh, as the fulfillment of this, the fullness of time. But there's something even more um, important, I think, that Paul is getting at, and that is that... so. You know, normally in the ancient world, when the son would graduate out from under the tutor or the manager, it's when they'd shown a certain level of maturity and achievement 
to then now it's time to graduate. But what Paul is saying is that graduation has nothing to do with you. (laughs) You Galatians and us Christians, you are not the ones who are graduating from law to gospel. It is the it is Jesus who is who is his death is that appointed time. He's the one that sets the graduation. And and then we see that that it's that that our graduating is called an adoption. So it turns out that the reason why there was no difference between the children who were the slaves and the children who were the sons is because there was only one son. <laughs> and he's the one who graduates. That's his resurrection. And that in his graduation, we are now adopted as the children of the slaves. We are now adopted in with the privilege of the son. So that so that Paul is making sure that we don't get the idea that our move from from law to gospel is some sort of achievement. Like I've I finished eighth grade, now I'm on to ninth grade. I finished, I've graduated from high school. I've I've got my degree or whatever. No, 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 no. Everything was accomplished outside of us, and it's given to us as a gift. Mm. I think that's a really important point. I was I was thinking about that too. This move from I when I was under the law, under the tutor, I looked like a slave, and now I'm I'm a son. And I was I was reflecting on uh, what I I've I've said before, and I know I've I've heard this from someone that we never stop being children of God. We're we're always always children of God. We're never adults of God. I'm not sure who who first told me that, <laughs> but I was reflecting on that in this case. And so what we're talking about this this advancement from slave to son, and maybe advancement's not even the right word, isn't a graduation, but it's rather receiving that place within God's family as a gift. I like the way that you, you've said that, and I think that's a really important point to pick up from this text. There, it's, it's not by our own achievement. That's the, the, the time is appointed and it's accomplished by the Son. It's not by our own being. That's, the, that's captured by the idea of adoption. You're not even naturally the Son. There is only one Son of God. The, the, Jesus is the only begotten. So we come into it not naturally, but legally by a declaration, and it's chosen by the Father so that every, every merit, every, everything about us is excluded from the gift. Uh, that, that that's the that's the thing that we can't miss here, but but then that means that if everything of us is excluded from the gift, that means that uh, it's purely by grace first of all, and second of all that in receiving that as a gift, everything in us is mm, what's the right way to say it? is demoted. And, and, and so sin is demoted by the forgiveness of sins. That It's cast off. All of our corruption, which is leading to our death, that's buried and put away. So that, so that when we are declared to be the children of God, it, it is a, it, it's, a, it's a putting off of everything good or bad of myself that I would try to include in that. I wish I had a better way to say it that made sense. It, it's... Um, uh, you know when, when when I when someone if I adopt a child, that child, I give my last name. They become a Wolfmuller. They no longer are a Apple. If I'm adopting your kids, for example, I don't probably wouldn't let me. That's wise of you. But they know. In other words, the, the there's a there's a putting off. 
in the in the work of adoption, there's a putting off of that which belongs to me by nature, and a receiving of that which belongs to grace. And and that so there's a dangerous if I try to go back to that old thing that I am, that no, that's an, actually becomes offensive to the to God who has adopted me. So so there's some so there's a there's a real transformation that happens even in my own identity in that work in in the work of God to call us his own children to adopt us into his family. Now the key thing here and that, I like the contrast between child and adult which is which is a wonderful thing. We always are God's children. But the key thing here is the difference between child and slave. Right. And uh and and this is what Paul is impressing on us constantly is God wants children not servants. He will not have us be his servants. Now, there's maybe two important things to say about that, because Paul himself will will take the f- title servant of God, and there are times when it speaks of serving God. So, so how can it be that God so clearly doesn't want children? He, he I'm sorry, he doesn't want servants. He wants children, and yet there's a way to be servants of God. Th- that there's a there's a paradox here at the. At the identity of what it means to be a Christian, Luther captures it in his little freedom of a Christian, where he says, "The Christian is the most free of all, servant to none. The Christian is the most bound of all, servant of everyone." And it has to do with our vocation. So, our vocation as Christian is the vocation of being the children of God, receiving everything from Him. There's no. Um, there's no earning, no working, no deserving. It's all gift, pure gift. But the Lord also gives us other vocations as neighbor, and in that place, then we are servants. So to love God and to love our neighbor, that's the that's the office of servant. So as a pastor, I'm the servant of God's word and the servant of the of the church. As a neighbor, I'm servant to my neighbor. But as a Christian, I'm the son of God. And as we stand, that vertical relationship, as we stand before God, is not one of service, it's one of, of, of adoption. It's one of, of being part of the family of God. I think this has worked out so beautifully in the parable of the prodigal son. The, the son says, I don't want to serve you, I'm going to be free. No, and then he's a slave to his belly, he comes back and he says, I'm not worthy to be called your child. Uh, make me as one of your hired hands. And he says, son, and he gives him all the gifts of son, of the sonship. So there's the slavery of despair. Father says, no, you're my son. And then there's the other slavery, the servant slavery of pride, the older son. I'm, all these years I've served you, I've did everything you ask. And he says, son, son, I don't want, I don't want servants. I don't need servants. I want children. And Paul is pressing that gospel into the ears and hearts of the Galatians with this. You are not God's slaves. You are his children. You know, that that thought of being a, a servant and what that looks like vertically, I think is it is it also in Luke where Jesus speaks about the, the wise and faithful servant that when the master returns, the master actually seats the servant at the table and the master serves the servant, which is entirely unexpected. That maybe is another a good picture of what it means to be a, a servant of God and yet remain his his son, his child. Yeah, there's a, the uh, another place is where Jesus is is washing the disciples' feet, and Peter tries to stop him, and, and Jesus says in Mark, "I came not to 
be served, but to serve and give myself as a ransom for many. So Jesus comes as the Lord who serves. And it's it's easy to mess that up and say, Jesus is the servant who serves, or Jesus is the Lord who is served. No, it's this, we got to have these both. He is the Lord who serves. So his service is always an astonishing surprise. Uh, his humility is always a shock to us. The gospel is always something of a wow, uh, because he is the Lord who humbles himself to serve. And then he says the servant isn't above the master. So this is also true. So so we, we do have places where we serve, but this is this is the point, is that the Lord says, the way it is with you and me is this, I've adopted you into my family, and I've, and, and I've done it through the gospel. And the law has brought you to that place. So, that, so that's the until of the law. The law brings you to the place of realizing that you need my redemption, that you need my rescue, that you need my help. But once it gets to that point, it's done its work and it has to stop. There's a very famous sermon on this text that becomes the backbone of C.F.W. Walther's proper distinction between law and gospel. It's a sermon that Luther preached on New Year's Eve, 1537 or something. And he was so overworked, he preached this, and he then he fainted afterwards, and he went home, and he didn't work for two months. So that, that's that kind of sermon that he preached. It was that good on the proper distinction between the law and the gospel. And he says, look, the law has its job, but it has to also stop. So the devil wants the law to tell you how it's going to be with you in eternal life. That's not the law's job. The devil wants the law to tell you how God thinks about you. That's not the law's job. The devil wants the law to inform your conscience. That's not the law's job. There's an until of the law. And the law is to show us our sin and our great need for Christ, and then it has to sit down. It has to... it has to take a break. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. That's how Paul says it to the Romans. So that the law has to now stop and let Christ take over because he is the judge, not the not the law. It's not Moses who will judge on the last day, but Christ. And so that's the that's that key point is that when we when the law when the law brings us to the end of ourselves, that's actually when we're ready for graduation <laughs> to be brought into the adoption as God's children. Yes, the the graduation that is actually an adoption into God's family. What wonderful good news from St. Paul. We're going to keep looking at this text more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Brian Wolfmuller this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 13th. We are studying Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7 with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. He serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches, both in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, prior to the break, you made the point that the primary distinction here is between a child and a slave, between a son and a slave. We talked at length about what it means to be a son of God and that great gift to be adopted into his family as a son. Uh, talk a little bit more about the slavery that Paul has in mind. That is another primary image. What is What does he have in mind when he's talking about this slavery here in Galatians 4? Yeah, it's especially if you look at verse 3, it says, So we, uh, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That That elemental things of the world, I think we can understand in a lot of different directions. So... There's a Jewish elemental things of the world. There's a pagan elemental things of the world. There's a there's there's a Christian elemental things of the world. He, he basically says that that the the law, which if we are to use the law to achieve God's good pleasure, we are in bondage to the elemental things of the world. So um, it could be uh, the the Jewish. It's basically legalism. It could be the Jewish legalism, it could be the pagan uh, legalism, it could be even Christian legalism that you're going to be, you're going to be saved by your good works, and that's what he calls the 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 bondage of this world. It's it has to do with the corruption that comes about after the fall, and I've been thinking about it like this because the church fathers will always talk about corruption, and I think that corruption shows up in different ways. So corruption, when it hits our body, it shows up as death. Corruption, when it hits the soul, shows up as sin. It's just, it's sin is death in the soul, and death is sin in the body. I mean, that that kind of that unraveling of the of the image of God that was originally put in us in the in creation and that was lost in the fall. That's this these elemental things, and so we we're always enslaved to them. We could be enslaved to the belly to food, to lust, to the desires of the flesh. We could be enslaved to the demons and the different idols of this world. We could be enslaved to our own works and our the sense of our own righteousness. None of that is freedom. All of that is slavery, and all of it ends in death. And so Paul says, that's that's childish stuff, but you've you've graduated. And again, you've graduated not by your own work, you've graduated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you've graduated by faith, which clings not to yourself or to the things of this world, but rather to Christ and his promises. So faith is that which lifts us out of the corruption of this world and clings to the perfection of Jesus. And uh, and that's what Paul is pressing us towards all through this entire, uh, entire letter, well, his whole ministry is pressing us to that, but especially here in Galatians. And as you said earlier, the way that God accomplishes this happens both in history, chronologically, in the in the incarnation of the of the Son, and also then for us personally in holy baptism. So let's let's look at those in turn in this text. Verses four and five describe that historical reality when God sent his son into the world and he describes it born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. So talk about that historical reality and how Paul proclaims that here in, in this verse. You know, here's something that we often miss. This occurred to me this last Christmas tide, is that we oftentimes think of of uh, Christmas as a beginning. 
And it's just, it's simply not. Uh, God the Son, who is named by Joseph, Jesus, is eternal. And he's sent by the Father into the flesh, into the womb of Mary. So, um, so we so for example we sing in the great uh, Christmas hymn, "From the Father forth He came, and returneth to the same." So that so that God sent His Son into the flesh. There's a go on down there. In fact, uh, dear Christians, one and all rejoice. This great Luther hymn has that same. The Father said to the Son, "Go forth," <laughs> so that. So that Jesus is sent into the womb of the Virgin Mary. There's a couple of these uh, law gospel paintings from from the um, Reformation that show Mary on the hill and a little baby flying out of heaven, carrying a cross, flying through the air toward the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's great. So that it's it's really good for us to remember that Jesus was sent to Mary and that and that this it, the incarnation as astonishing it 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 is an astonishing moment when God is now united to humanity in the womb of the Virgin, March twenty fifth three B C, that 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 this this moment is a profound moment. But it's important for us to realize that 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 the Son was before that and came into that moment. So so that's the first God sent forth His Son, and then it says born of a woman. A lot of people have said that Paul never mentions the virgin birth. But this is Paul talking of the virgin birth. This is his mentioning of it. This is Paul's born of the Virgin Mary. So um, I don't know I don't know why the the progressive the you know the lib scholars they they wanna I don't know why that's a point for them that Paul didn't mm-hmm. believe in the virgin birth. I don't know. That seems but they like to say that, but this is our text that we say against us. No, he's born of a woman, which is very important that that this is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, that you, your seed will crush his head, and that promise of the seed that runs all the way through, so that Jesus is eternal, and yet he, he's the eternal God, and yet he's man, and he's born. He's not just, he doesn't fly out of heaven age 20 or whatever, he's born, uh, he's born under the law, so that Jesus is born not only with the law that constrains all of humanity, but he's born under the constraints of the law that God gave to Moses. This is also very important, that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, that the the sacrifice of purification was made for Mary on the 40th day in the temple in Jerusalem, that Jesus was uh, under the um, under the law of God, un- and specifically under the law of Moses, so that he can bring redemption for all those who are under the law, so that, so that Jesus comes um, bearing the constraints that God had put in place on Mount Sinai, and so that he can fulfill that law and rescue us who are under that law, so that Jesus was both actively and passively righteous. He fulfilled, he kept the law in every way, and he never broke the law in any way. That's his active and passive righteousness. And he is all those things so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So that Jesus is able to offer himself as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And as God's Lamb to take away the sin of the world, he, he, uh, 
he, he lived the perfect life and endures not only the wrath of God for a, a, a per, for a singular sin, not never for his own, but in fact for all sins, none of his own, for all sins ever committed, and so with his human and divine natures united in this singular person, he is now the world's redeemer, the one who redeems us. And that redemption, that price paid for us to win the to appease God's wrath and to open his heart towards us, that redemption results in our adoption. So so because Jesus has taken away our sin, he's taken away the cause of God's wrath and now opened up the, the heart of God to be able to receive us. And how beautiful this is, that now this is, ex, is extended, this picture of not only being God's child, but being specifically being sons, just connected to the inheritance, it, it, um, it now opens up the way for us to receive the Spirit, so that, so that as, ch- as the children of God, we receive the Spirit. So you see, the Father sends the Son, the Son works redemption, which makes a way for the restoration of the Spirit, who now is in our own ta- heart tabernacles, crying out, Abba, Father. So that, so that the Father sends the Son, who sends the Spirit, who then cries out to the Father. And, and we have this Trinitarian circle, and we're, bro- we're brought into this conversation and into this working of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm. Yeah, before, I'm, I'm gonna, I do want to come back to that thought of being brought into the, the story, as we were talking about toward the beginning of our conversation, the way God brings us into the story. Before we, we, we believe the born of woman and those, those phrases from Paul, what you were saying about Christmas not necessarily being a, a beginning, or maybe the way that we often think about it, at the same time, there is something unique that happens, though. I mean, Paul calls this the fullness of time that God has brought about. So there's something there's something to the incarnation and, and then the Lord's appearance in the incarnation and his birth that is unique. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, we, you know, we think of our own lives as beginning at conception, which is right. It's just this, that Jesus did not begin at his conception. He, he is eternally the Son. Right. There, the incarnation, though, does begin, well, at the incarnation. <laughs> so, That's right. And, and you're right, this is something that is unique, that has never happened before and will never happen again, that, that, the, that God, the Son, has taken on our humanity. Um, but uh, th- this idea of Jesus there in the bosom of the Father... And and the father saying, "Go, it's yeah. time now. Go." That that precedes the incarnation. That, I think that's important for us. We just sure. I think we often miss it. And so this, the father sent the son, and um, uh, and it's you know it's all over the scriptures. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That that Jesus is in the bosom of the father eternally. It's it, I think it's important for us to remember that. But you are right. The incarnation is is unique. It is the, um, I mean, it's astonishing, really. It's yeah. it's it, it's this uh, uh, that the that the Creator is now part of His creation. Our our hymns at Christmas are always trying to grab a hold of this paradox, you know. Yeah. So the one who feeds the animals is nursing at Mary's uh, breast. That the one who created the stars is looking up at them. That the one who, um. That the that the one who holds the the universe in his hands is being carried in the hands of his mother. That, um, the, uh, 
the one to whom all things owe their existence now has a birthday. I mean, that yeah. it's uh, the the it's astonishing. The, the it's 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 one of the, the you know the two great mysteries of the, of the Christian faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation. And it just means it's just the more we think about it, the more astonishing it becomes. The more we meditate on it. The, the the farther it seems to get from our own grasp you know you take one step towards it and it it's two steps farther away because it's so it's so astonishing hmm. absolutely absolutely and i think too with the you're talking about the matter of born under the law which paul then follows up to redeem those who are under the law he also says that the son was born of woman and although he doesn't say to redeem those who are born of woman i wonder if that's part of the implication talk a little bit about the importance of jesus Again, that the Son, who is eternal, begotten from the Father from eternity, that he's now born of woman. He's he's born among us as one of us. Talk about that significance. Right, right. Well, you know, um, uh, uh, Paul talks about, or, or sorry, um, well, who am I thinking about? Uh, Hebrews, yeah. So Paul in Hebrews talks about how he was not born to save the angels. Right. So what's excluded... So the Incarnation is actually... Um, it kind of sets the bracket of who is to be saved by by this one, and so it's not the um, it's not the angels, it's not also the animals, it is it is the children of Adam and Eve. So so the the incarnation sets the scope for for redemption, but it, it also not only does it narrow the scope, it also expands it. I mean, who who is being saved? All who are born of women, and and even. The two who weren't born of women, Adam and Eve, they're also included in the bracket. So, 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 so that it, Jesus' um, incarnation is is taking on humanity beautifully. So, um, so that taking upon humanity is is um, is is helpful. He's he's not just. In, in fact, if we take this up from the previous text, you know, no, neither Jew nor Gentile. It's Jesus did not just come to save the children of Abraham. He came to to save the children of Adam and Eve. Mm. Now, from this, Paul says again, we receive this adoption as sons. This is our graduation, not an accomplishment, but an adoption. And because of this, because you are sons, then God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying. Abba, Father. So the and I, it strikes me the the way that Paul uses the same verb there as he did back in verse four, that God sent forth the Son. Now He sends forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. This I think relates to what we were talking about earlier about the matter of a story. That there is this story that God has worked, and now He's bringing us into that story by sending. Just like he sent the Son into the world, now he sends the Spirit into our hearts to incorporate us into that true story of good news. Yeah, the, um, the old theologians—that's exactly right, and so beautiful, too. The old theologians, especially Chemnitz, he loved to think about this, the, that a huge part of our redemption is the restoration of the Spirit. So, so that Adam and Eve possessed the Spirit— in the garden, and it was lost in the fall, and that Jesus is working the restoration of the Spirit to humanity, so that Pentecost becomes that triumphant moment when he pours out his Spirit on all flesh, that now, through the redemption worked in Christ, 
the, there is a way made for the restoration of the Spirit. Now, I, I don't know exactly how to think of this, but here's, here's the best I can do, and this is picking up on some language that Luther gives us in his commentary on the Magnificat. He says, if you think of humanity like the tabernacle, you can kind of get a picture of the architecture. So we sometimes talk about being body and soul, or sometimes we talk about being body, soul, and spirit, the dichotomist versus the trichotomist view of humanity, and Luther says well, he, he, he's not interested in the debate. He says, think of it this way. There's the outer court, that's the body. There's the tabernacle, that's the soul. And there's the holy of holies, that's the spirit. So the spirit is part of the soul, and it's the part of the soul where God lives, where the spirit dwells. But apart from the Holy Spirit being present in our spirit, if you can think of it like a room, it's filled with unclean, dark darkness and unclean spirits. But Jesus, in his work of redemption, casts out the unclean spirits and makes way for the Holy Spirit, so that now the Holy Spirit dwelling in our spirit is is informing our lives, and that Spirit comes through the body. In other words, it doesn't just drop out of heaven. He walks through the front door of the ear, in through the heart, uh, into the Spirit. So that, so that now the Holy Spirit, Jesus' redemption and the forgiveness of sins, the, the, if you think of it like this, when the, in the tabernacle, the high priest would carry the blood into the holy place and sanctify it with blood. So now when that blood is brought to bear in heaven we're declared holy, and when the blood is brought to bear on us through baptism, now there's that place, our own holy of holies, if you will, our heart, our spirit, is cleansed so that the Holy Spirit can dwell there without offense, without destruction. And so so Jesus, in his redemptive work, has made a way for the Holy Spirit to come back to us. And so we hardly think of this, I, I think I'm I'm convinced that this might be a longer conversation, but I'm convinced that the misuse of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit by the Charismatics and Pentecostals in the last three generations has made everybody in the Christian Church wary of talking about the Holy Spirit, because we think the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make us go nuts. Now, that's obviously not the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came—I mean, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So if you see anybody losing control, you know that that's not the Holy Spirit there. So so we, we got to take that categories, those categories that the Pentecostals have kind of thrust on us. We have to we have to press those out of our imaginations so that there's a way to understand the the great gift of the Holy Spirit that when Jesus takes our humanity to the to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, there's a way made for us to for the Holy Spirit to come back to us. And that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be a bearer of the Holy Spirit in in this world. Now that Holy Spirit and our own spirit is not without opposition. We always have the flesh trying to quench the spirit. But this, this is this is who the Christian is, is the one who has the spirit. And the first act of the spirit is to is to pray the Lord's Prayer <laughs> so beautifully. Yeah. Abba Father, the first act of the Spirit is to turn our hearts not away from God, but toward God. Remember, remember the indication that the Holy Spirit was gone is when Adam and Eve heard the Lord in the garden, they ran away from him, but now the Holy Spirit's returned. So we turn back to God, look to him for help, and we're crying out to him. And we're praying, and in this way, we're brought into this holy conversation that is the eternal life of love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're adopted as children. We have the Holy Spirit. We now cry out, 
Abba, Father. I mean, Hebrew, Greek, we're, you know, whatever. We're all part then of the Lord's family. Uh, and this is, this is this restoration that's worked through the redemption of Christ's blood. It, it strikes me that within this passage, it is the the Spirit is the one who is crying out, Abba, Father. Paul speaks very similar to this in Romans 8, and he says that we cry out, Abba, Father, also. But the fact that the Spirit is the one crying in this passage, I think it just goes back to what you were saying earlier, that this is all the work of God in us. It's all grace. Even the, the prayer that we pray is the Spirit doing that praying for us. At, uh, again, I, I, I think it's significant in this context. Yeah, there's a beautiful formulation that, again, the old theologians used to use. I think it's helpful that all God's gifts come from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, and then we, in the Spirit, through the Son, pray to the Father. And so there's this mediator, mediatorial work of Christ. The origin and goal is the Father, and it's it's saturated, if you will, surrounded by the, the work of the Spirit. And, and this is what... Um, uh, this is what Paul. This is the kind of framework that Paul has in mind. Yeah. Now, in the the last verse of our text, Paul starts to to wrap things up, but again, he's going to continue this image into the following verses as well. He says in verse seven, "You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God." So we've talked about slavery, sonship, and now he connects the sonship to inheritance. Take us into that part right. of the image. That's right. So we have we have both pictures given to us in, in the Scriptures. You are the children of God, and you are the sons of God. And it's different words, children and son, and here the word is son. Uh, it's First John has the beautiful passion, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. So so we are God's children, and we should we should rejoice in that as His children. But here it's specific. We're not just the children of God. We're sons. Even the women listening to us out there have this gift of being the sons of God, which means the heirs. So especially in the ancient world, it would have been the sons that would, and the oldest son specifically, that would have been the inheritor of the property. Maybe the other sons would have gotten a portion, or maybe they would have gotten some money or some of the wealth. But the property, you can imagine if you have to split it up between all your children, that like three generations and everyone has like a postage stamp. So you got to kind of keep the property, the the inheritance of the property together. So that goes to the oldest son. And so Jesus says, that's that's mine, which means it's yours. We, we are the co-heirs. Paul, Paul says it like this in Romans. We are co-heirs with Christ, so that everything that the Father has given to the Son, He gives to us, because we, we receive these things in Him. It's, it's an amazing thing that we're not just—it's not like we're adopted alongside Christ. We, we are adopted in Christ. We, we are crucified with Christ. I no longer live—Christ um, lives in me, and my life is hid with God in Christ. So— so we are in Christ, and so that all the gifts that the Father gives to the Son, he, we are now recipients of. We're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. That's how Paul talks about it to, in Ephesians. So that, so that all of the kindness of God toward the Son is ours. All of the love of the Father to the Son is ours. All of the gifts of the Father to the Son are ours because we are in Christ. So we are co-heirs. Can you believe it? Yeah, this wow. means, I mean, just a simple application of this is when, whenever I'm talking to people who, you know, they're, they're thinking about dying and facing the judgment, and they're pretty sure that it's going to be hard for them to get into heaven. 
Like it's going to be some sort of challenge or judgment or that, you know, you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven and, and, and God's going to be standing there and being and shaking his head at you. Like, "Mm, I'm not sure I want you in here. Well, look, we have to imagine how difficult it was for Jesus to get into heaven at his ascension. Like, you know, is what Peter standing there? Like, uh, apparently Peter's standing. I'm not sure you belong here. No. I mean, the, the gates are thrown open. And, the, and, the, and this is where he belongs at the Father's right hand. That's given also to us. It will be as hard for us to make it into heaven as it was for Jesus. That's the whole point of the, of the, of the doctrine of justification, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, his perfection, his holiness, his, God being pleased with him. That's all given to us in Christ and everything else that belongs to him. Now, it, we don't have that inheritance apart from Christ, but we are not apart from Christ. So that, so that the one who has redeemed us, has adopted us, has given us the Spirit, and that Spirit serves as a down payment, that's a key thing that will come up later in Galatians and comes up a couple of places in Paul. That Spirit, which is a great enough gift already, is a down payment for the riches that are on the way. And that complete restoration of our humanity that will occur in the resurrection and that we will be made partakers of this? I mean, who who could even imagine things so good? And yet that's what the Lord has done for us in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God be praised. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is pastor at St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches, both in Austin, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Pastor Wolfmuller, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. God has brought us into his story. He, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the law. Now we have been adopted as sons. He has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And now in Christ, we have his inheritance. God be praised. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians chapter 4, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store.